Humans are innately social creatures. For the same reason that quarantine is difficult, so is standing up for one another when no one's holding us accountable. We are deeply interconnected, far more than we realize. But how do those connections shape our collective behavior? I'm Izzy Amoruso. I'm Edward Sturm. And this is Duality. Every week we bring you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, Like a Good Neighbor. The murder of Kitty Genovese and an outbreak in Belgium seem incongruous. They aren't. Just a note, in continuation of last week's conversation, at the end of the episode we will be highlighting resources we have found helpful for allies to further engage with the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, so... In the summer of 1999, Belgium had just been swept up in a scandal about the introduction of dioxin into some animal feed, uh, which already had everybody on edge, when reports came from a school of a a case of Coca-Cola that had a strange uh, rotten eggs kind of smell. And almost immediately after drinking the Coke, uh, about 30 children fell ill, uh, and they had a, a wide range of different symptoms, headaches, stomach issues, nausea, vomiting. But news of this spread really quickly. And over the next few days, nearly 250 school children across Belgium reported similar symptoms, all in response to uh, what, what they believed was illness caused from Coca-Cola. This was uh, naturally a disaster for the Coca-Cola company. The country of Belgium advised all of its citizens against drinking any of their products. Uh, Anxiety ran high in surrounding countries, France, um, Luxembourg, even as far as uh, Britain Britain and Japan had, you know, a a tangible reaction, particularly oriented at the Coca-Cola company. Coke ended up uh, recalling over $15 million of product. It's the biggest recall in company history, uh, and they were facing this PR nightmare. Um, As for the kids themselves, though, a few days went by, everything was fine, they all recovered, nobody passed away, um, and everyone was left wondering, you know, what happened. Uh, So Coca-Cola initially said that it was an issue with their factory, that there was some bad CO2. But as uh, research started looking into the chemicals themselves, there were no irregularities to be found that could have possibly caused all the illnesses uh, that happened. And so the sickness is is now believed to be a case of hysteria. What, what is so interesting to me about this case of sociogenic illness, as it's called, is how connected the students are, that, that seeing somebody else's pain literally caused them to become sick themselves. So do you think that's an example of extreme empathy to the point where children are literally taking each other's physical ailments? Or do you think it's just psychosomatic? Well, I think it's both. It's undoubtedly psychosomatic. Um, But it seems to me that that within that reaction, it's the same sort of thing that is the, the same motivation that's driving empathy. The British Journal of Psychiatry wrote an article in 2002 where they discussed the broader history of sociogenic illness. I wanted to go into that a little bit, partially just because I think it's so interesting, but also because it gives us a a better glimpse into sociogenic illness and, and all of the things that that brings with it. Between the 15th and 19th centuries, there were a lot of notable outbreaks in convents that were construed as 
demonic possessions and they would rush to do an exorcism. Uh, but there were situations where nuns would start convulsing or, or gyrating in the, in the middle of mass. Um, and contemporary psychologists have connected this largely to uh, their, their shared repressive conditions. There's an instance in modern-day Malaysia, in the 80s actually, uh, at a very fundamental conservative religious school where a large group of female students experienced crying fits and, you know, possessive, almost demonic episodes that are remarkably similar to what was going on in the convents of the Middle Ages. And, you know, it wasn't until they were transferred to a different, uh, more liberal school that they uh, recovered and returned to normal. So I, I think it's it's interesting that the same sort of elements that were were driving something back then can, can even be seen now in in, in the nineteen eighties. In the 19th century, both in Industrial Revolution era, harsh working environments, and also in, in very strict boarding schools, there are more int- instances of, of motor illnesses, like physical, you know, flailing around or, or just severe pains in, in arms or legs or whatever it may be. Uh, as we head into the 20th century, however, concerns shift uh, to be more about food and uh, the environment. So the triggers for sociogenic illness become more related to things like a strange smell or a strange taste that, that a group collectively experiences. Um, uh, but what's interesting is that the, the symptoms also shift to be more consistent with anxiety-induced illnesses. So, so now it's no longer crying fits or, or pains in the arm, uh, but it's stomach aches or nausea or respiratory issues. And then uh, most recently, the article goes on to talk about how in the 21st century, uh, that fears of terrorism are largely impacting sociogenic illness, whether it may be in the Middle East, people are uh, suffering from an outbreak of uh, symptoms uh, consistent with chemical weapons when chemical weapons were never used, or um, instances uh, of what, what people believe to be terrorism on a train or on a bus where, where something gets sprayed and perhaps it's not harmful at all, but people react as if it is. I think it's really interesting how connected the setting or environment of a situation is to the reaction of the population. Absolutely. And there's also that element of the community, you know, whether it's the nuns in the Covenant or the fellow factory workers in London or or the kids at school in Belgium. There is that uh, shared experience which drives so much of sociogenic illness. So you've given us an example of or many examples of instances in which communities are so connected to the point where their impact on each other is physically manifested. The opposite of that would be a situation in which people are seemingly apathetic to the plight of a fellow community member. And that idea is present in the story that I brought today. Right. On March 13th, 1964, in New York City, Kitty Genovese was on her way home when she was attacked by 29-year-old Winston Mosley. He stabbed her twice in the back before she could reach her apartment, which was just 100 yards away. Robert Moser, one of the neighbors who heard Kitty's screams, called out for Mosley to leave, which he seemingly did, but Robert Moser took no further action. Winston Mosley returned ten minutes later, after Kitty had dragged herself to the back of her building, and she had collapsed. He proceeded to stab her at least 14 times before violently raping her and taking $49 off of her body. Despite her repeated calls, No neighbors who heard her screams came to her aid. Some claimed that they didn't think that she was crying out for help. 
These events unfolded over the span of a half hour. It was reported that soon after the final attack, another witness, Carl Ross, called two of his friends for advice on what to do, one of which is believed to have eventually called the police, but there is still uncertainty around that narrative. There is also uncertainty as to how help actually arrived. Some reports indicate that one of the neighbors did call the police, while others indicate that no one called the police. Genovese was picked up by an ambulance at 4.15 a.m. and died on the way to the hospital. This sent the city into a state of shock, not because of the murder, but because nobody did anything to stop it. The number of witnesses was initially reported as 38, although recently this number was called into question. The case sparked an academic investigation into what we know today as the bystander effect. This is a phenomena in which the more people present, the lower the likelihood of people taking action to provide assistance in emergencies. John Darley and Bib Latinay, two social psychiatrists, read about the case at the start of their research careers, and they started to wonder why no one stepped in to help Kitty Genovese. There were many witnesses that could have responded, but they were looking to see what the others were doing. They decided to create a relatively ambiguous situation to test how people would react depending on how many people were with them. They conducted this experiment on students at Columbia University who were filling out paperwork in a room under the impression that they were going to be interviewed. As they filled out their questionnaires, smoke began seeping through the vents, and after four minutes, there was enough smoke to inhibit people from breathing or seeing clearly. When students were alone, they invariably left the room to report what was happening. In the second scenario, the students were with two other people who had been instructed not to react to the smoke entering the room. Under these circumstances, only one of the ten participants reported the smoke. That is really fascinating. You know, it, it makes me think of a, a real-life example that's, that's pretty similar. I don't know if you're familiar with the Coconut Grove fire, uh, but in 1942 in Boston, uh, the Coconut Grove was a, a hugely popular nightclub, and uh, it through a, a series of um, a match lit by a, a waiter, the uh, entire entire complex burned down. It was the, the deadliest nightclub fire in history, uh, somewhere in the, the neighborhood of 400 uh, casualties. So, so I mean, hugely, hugely impactful. Um, but this, this uh, area was, or the, the, the nightclub was fragmented into different, to different sections. So uh, the area in which the fire started, there were, there were people in, in upstairs or, or in other parts of the, the nightclub who, who weren't aware of it for a long while. And so there's there's one instance where a, a band is playing and somebody comes up on the stage, stops the band and tells everyone, "Hey, there's a fire, you need to get out immediately." And, and nobody moves. Everybody just sort of stares at them. They gets off the stage and they continue standing around talking. Uh, it's not until they actually see people running away uh, and see people um fleeing the building that that they themselves are are um you know f- pushed into action. I think that the fire, as well as the experiment, are examples that highlight the link between the bystander effect and diffusion of responsibility, which is when an individual holds the belief that other people who are present will intervene in a situation, therefore diminishing their personal responsibility. And initially, when I learned about the bystander effect, I was under the impression that the bystander effect caused diffusion of responsibility, but in fact, it's quite the opposite. Diffusion of responsibility is 
one of the causal components, one of the many that contribute to the bystander effect. Um, another of which is anonymity, which is the mindset of no one really knows who I am. So even if I witnessed it, no one really knows that I witnessed it. Therefore, I will not be held personally responsible. And this again highlights the importance of someone taking personal responsibility or having a stake in the situation at hand. Um, another factor is what form of assistance the situation requires. Either direct intervention, meaning them physically going and helping, or indirect intervention, which could be calling the police. Then there's the question of evaluating the value of the person. Does the bystander believe that this person is deserving of help? And although that may not seem moral, it's something that we do. Another factor is ambiguity. To, to what extent is the bystander certain of the events taking place? If we're uncertain of the risks presented in a situation, we're far less likely to act. And then there is group cohesion, which introduces a social identity and relationship component to this issue. So, for example, if I were getting attacked in front of my best friends, they're much more likely to jump in and help me than a group of people who don't know me. Depending on the relationship between the bystander and the victim, they are more or less likely to take action. Yeah, this is perhaps the, the greatest point of comparison between the bystander effect and sociogenic illness. So if, if we were going to you know go out on a limb here and uh, view what happened in Belgium using the same paradigm as, as uh, the bystander effect, the ambiguity is much different, and so is the uh, group cohesion, the, those last two that you were talking about. In New York City, there wasn't a clear direction of, of what to do. As, as you sort of talked about, people weren't exactly sure. There were no social cues as to what, what the appropriate thing to do was it to run and help or to call the police or just ignore it and assume that, that something else was going on or, or, or not, not pay attention at all. Whereas even even if it was subconscious in Belgium, there was a clear directive of of what to do. the The socially appropriate thing to do was was to be sick, and and so I think that that manifested to some extent. You know, in in some ways, it's the simple narrative conversation that we were having last week. Before we do anything, we want to know clearly what action we should take. We want to have a clear picture of the scenario that is to all of the, the, the moral failings of this black and white, absolute. So even though it wasn't conscious, the children in Belgium, I, I think, knew what the socially acceptable action was to be sick, um, and so, so that manifested. I was talking to a friend about the bystander effect, and she pointed out to me that it's much more effective to yell fire when you're in need of assistance than to yell help, because it indicates a clear emergency. When you yell help, there could be a number of emergencies taking place while fire is pretty cut and dry. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The group cohesion, you know, is, is also very different in the two circumstances. Divided up in their apartments, all of the neighbors were living remarkably different lives. I think that it would have been a, a much different scenario if everybody were, were even standing together in, in a crowded um, mall or something like that where not only the ambiguity might have been more clear, you might have had a, a better perception of what was going on, but you'd also have a better understanding and, and, and somewhat of a feeling of the group behind you. I mean, even more so if it were to say, you know, Izzy, if, if the, the group that we went to camp together with the in the previous years, if, if all of us were, were even divided up into, into different rooms, um, hearing somebody scream, you already have that cohesion, you have that group. And, and I imagine that a class of, of students at, at a school would have 
that level of cohesion that uh, people living side by side in New York might not have. So in actuality, we're seeing that these two stories share causal components, although the outcomes were very different. In Belgium, the social indicators are clear, and the result is that everyone acts in the same way. In New York, the social indicators were not clear, and the result was inaction. It's it's interesting because when I when I proposed this story to you, the, these two stories together, we we both thought of them as as very different, and, and almost as if the the job of our conversation today was going to be to reconcile two uh, completely different uh, phenomena in, in, in human behavior. On one hand, where we're so empathetic and so interconnected that we're, we're physically making each other ill, but yet on the other hand, we, we can be so ignorant to the, the needs of others. But in actuality, it's the same um, perception of social cues and uh, the, these different these different elements that are causing people to act on either side of the, of the pendulum swinging. Right. I wouldn't categorize these events into apathy or empathy. The connections shared by the people in these groups or communities seem to be more indicative of the resulting actions or inaction. So what do you see as the lesson of this duality, I guess, this, this finding of... Um, a connection where there wasn't, at least for us. Because we are social creatures, we are so influenced by what is going on around us that it can violate our morals or our health. In some ways, it's it's very similar to peer pressure. We, you know, there's that whole like if if um, Izzy was jumping off the bridge, would, would you jump off of a bridge? Well, no. Oh. but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but but we do see people falling into a mob mentality all the time, and uh, when when the conditions are right for it in, in either direction, uh, people act very differently than they would have if they, you know, were to to be totally aware of of all of the facts and to, to be in tr- truthfully making their own decisions. It's almost acts of social permission. We want to see someone give us an example of what we should be doing. If one person had gone and helped in the Kitty Genovese case, I, I bet that more people would have gone and helped. In unknown circumstances, we're looking for someone to lead us. Right. I think that, I mean, you see this all over the place. You see this uh, with uh, social media, calls to action. You know, when, when, when things are, are massively shared, it's, it's, it's like a snowball that keeps going. You feel an, almost an obligation to become a part of that. I mean, I think of a, a personal scenario that I had. I was, it was in fourth grade um, in, in Mrs. Reedy's class, and um, a couple of people went home early that day because they were feeling sick, which I, I guess is a thing that you, the, that you do if you go to the office and you have a, te- have a temperature that is greater than 98.6, which is itself a, a questionable number. Um, but uh, after that happened, another person would get up and say, I need to go, and they'd come back and they'd be like, sure, my, my temperature is 99.2. I need, I, I'm going, I've called my parents. And uh, actually, uh, I, I think it was a class of, of 16 um nine were gone by the end of the day. Um, so, 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 so just sort of a, a mass exodus of the, the class, and that's always stuck out to me. Uh, I think I, I probably understand that scenario a lot more now, uh, having had this conversation. There are more than likely many instances of hysteria illness that we are completely unaware of just because 
no one's looking into the cause of the illness or we're not aware that that could even be a possibility. And I'm sure that this could be one of those situations. Likewise, I think that there are uh, probably many times where people could have stepped up and, and stopped major things from happening, but didn't because they didn't feel like they had the, the social permission to do so. What I hope that we can take away from these two stories is that we need to try to bring our individual morality into group scenarios and try to be conscious of when our actions are disproportionately based off of what the people around us are doing rather than what we actually believe is right. And that comes in many forms and it won't come naturally. As we've seen, human nature will be acting against us in terms of this goal, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. If we can try to align our actions and our feelings of personal responsibility in a more active and conscious fashion, I hope that we end up being the people who do set examples for others to follow in dire situations. In light of recent events, the necessity for non-Black allies to be actively anti-racist has never been more apparent. So many resources exist for you to donate, educate yourself, and improve your understanding of racial issues in America. Izzy and I can only use this space to amplify Black voices, so we wanted to give you our recommendations of resources that have been helpful to us. For me, I'd recommend Rachel Cargill's 30-day-long do-the-work course. It sends to your inbox daily resources of articles, videos, and actionable items for you to better understand racial issues in America. You can find more information at her social media at Rachel Cargill. An organization that I highly recommend donating to and supporting is the Okra Project. They provide home-cooked meals to members of the Black trans community, and they have partnered with the Osborne Association as well as other community spaces to provide meals to those in the Black trans community who are experiencing homelessness. More information can be found at their website, theokraproject.com. We encourage you to continue to consider ways you can fight for justice and continue your allyship. Next week on Duality, we discuss public apologies. Companies, celebrities, and especially politicians come up with all kinds of words to say instead of sorry. Why do we keep getting this wrong? Thanks for listening to Duality. Subscribe now on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And find us on Facebook and Instagram at Duality Podcasts.